This week I was at a conference uh, in Chicago and uh, was just downloaded this, this church planning movement that's happening throughout Europe right now. It's grassroots. Uh, it's, it's centered on one Lord, one faith, one gospel, one Christ, one baptism. Things in our city are bubbling up as well. Uh, it's an exciting time to be alive, to be a part of what God is doing uh, in us for the sake of the world. And I think our text today that we're going to look at um, gives us our marching orders in terms of uh, what we're, the kind of people that we're called to be. Uh, if we're going to be this clay in the potter's hands, clay that he can use, clay that he can mold. So I know you guys have been standing, but let's stand for the reading of God's word in Mark chapter 14. Now the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread were only two days away, and the chief priests and the rabbis were scheming to arrest Jesus secretly to kill him. But not during the feast, they said, or the people may riot. Again, look, look at who, who is for this and who is against this. While Jesus was in Bethany reclining at the table in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came with an alabaster jar made of very expensive perfume of oil and pure nard. She broke the jar and poured the perfume, all of it, on his head. And some of those present were saying indignantly, indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? It could have been sold for more than a year's wages, and the money could have been given to the poor. <laughs> you think virtue, virtue signaling is just something of our day. Here you're reading it right here 2,000 years ago. They rebuked her harshly. Leave her alone, said Jesus. Why are you bothering her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. It's actually a quote, by the way, from Deuteronomy uh, 15, where God actually instructs his people. So many of God's instructions in Torah are how to take care of the poor, rehabilitate the poor. Um, and so this is not a statement about Jesus um, thinking lightly about the poor. Quoting Deuteronomy 15, the poor you always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This is God's word. You can be seated. So that last verse there, um, I think is significant when Jesus says, truly I tell you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. This connects us with last week, if you were here, uh, where we said that the, 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 the primary uh, verse of, of Mark 13 
which is not describing the end of time, but the end of a time, uh, the end when uh, God, who for a whole millennium, a thousand years, uh, dwelled in that house on the hill, how that is all coming to an end, and the significance of that, because we are now that house on a hill. We are God's house. We are God's temple. And, uh, and, and, and at the heart of being God's temple is verse 10 in chapter 13, when it says, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. And this is the urgency uh, of, of the movement of Christ. Um, it, it, it's, it's to get this to all nations. And we looked at also verse 27, where it says, in the angels, he will send his angels uh, to gather his elect from the four winds, the four corners of the earth. Um, the word for angel there is the word messenger, and so it's not really referring uh, probably to spiritual beings. It's referring to us, his church. We are the sent ones. We are the messengers. Uh, and so this urgency that exists uh, for the church to be about bringing God's house to the world, his garden. And now today, uh, looking at this story, and it ends with that urgency that this story will be told as the gospel is taken to the four corners of the earth. Now, let's just uh, start with just some of the context. Uh, Passover is just two days away. Uh, Passover is a one-day holiday, uh, followed then by a seven-day holiday called unleavened bread, which is why you have uh, both of these in verse one. So together, this eight-day holiday celebrates probably the greatest event in their history, their story. It's when God delivered them from slavery in Egypt, uh, maybe much like what July 4 is, is to us. But here's the thing with these holidays, these feasts, um, the, these things did not just evolve out of their history. God is actually the one who instructs these holidays. He's the one who shapes them. And then he calls them my appointments. It's like God's telling them, get your calendars out because these are the dates when you're going to meet with me. And you're not going to just meet with me, but you're going to meet me at my house. And so this is why Jews are coming from all over the world uh, to Jerusalem, because God says you can't just celebrate this feast anywhere. Um, you, it's an appointment with me at my house. You've got to come to my house. And something else to uh, think about is most Jews arrive four to six days before Passover. It's because God shaped this whole holiday around a lamb. God instructs each family, one lamb, and you're to, you're to get that lamb four days before Passover. And most of the people uh, get that lamb from the temple, which is why you have all the buying and the selling and the currency exchange going on, which also upset Jesus, as we know. Um, and then the, the evening of Passover, they sacrifice that lamb. So I'm telling you that all of this to, to explain why Jesus... And, and all the pilgrims are getting there uh, several days before the Passover, which these days now make up the last week of Jesus' life. So this is what Jesus is doing in these days. As we've seen, every day he's going to the temple, he's doing his thing, he's healing, he's teaching, he's in this debates, he's sparring with the leadership of his, of his day, he's doing this every single day, and then every night, he retires to this village of Bethany. 
Bethany is just a small little uh, village outside of Jerusalem, and he has a family there that opens their home to him. And I want to ask, who is this family? So when you piece the Gospels together, this is the home of three siblings uh, whose names are Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. Simon the leper, who is in our text, is, is most, most likely Martha's husband. And, and what we see in the Gospels, early in Jesus' ministry, uh, this family actually opens their home to Jesus. Anytime Jesus is, is in Jerusalem, uh, this is the place where Jesus most likely stays. In Luke 10, it says that Martha opened her home to him. And I think sometimes we forget um, that Jesus needed the same things that we all need. He needed a safe place. He needed real friends. He needed a place to escape the intensity, the exhaustion, uh, the demands of his call, a place where he can just put his feet up and rest. And Mary and Martha and Lazarus provide this for Jesus. In fact, John's gospel gives us this detail. John's gospel says Jesus loved Martha and her sister Mary and Lazarus. And nowhere in the Gospels does it say this about anyone else, that Jesus loved them. It's not that Jesus didn't, but it's only said of these three, and you have to ask why. It's because they opened their home to Jesus. They invited him in. They served him. They loved him. What about you? Have you opened your home to Jesus? Have you brought Jesus into your home? And I'm not talking about just bringing in all the religious trappings uh, associated with Jesus. I'm talking about Jesus, the person. I mean, to have Jesus in our home where he's high and lifted up, where he is adored and worshiped, and to have homes without walls so that the world can see homes where Jesus is high and lifted up. It's beautiful. So after a long day at the temple, they're having dinner. Now it's common courtesy in that day when you came into someone's home that the host of the home would dab some perfume or fragrance on a person's head. This is because uh, this is a time where there are no showers, soap, deodorant, toothpaste. Uh, people are traveling by foot. There's no air conditioning, hot climate, and lots of smells. So this was the way to just kind of remedy that. But a woman in, in this home does something that's way way over the top. Now we know from John's gospel, because he also tells this story as well, that this woman is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. And Mary comes out with this alabaster jar. These alabaster jars in, 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 in this day were, were, were kind of common, um, mainly amongst the wealthy. Um, they, they were filled with this oil called spikenard, which was mixed with myrrh. 
And it was this hugely expensive oil that came from India. And I can promise you, this is easily the most expensive thing that Mary or this family owns. Our text says it's worth a year's wages. So if you're wondering, like, how much is it worth, just ask yourself how much you make in a year, and that's what this, this jar of perfume is worth. In fact, very wealthy people in Jesus' day would would oftentimes wear this uh, alabaster jar around their neck, um, just in the same way that people wear expensive jewelry today. Also, it was was known that fathers would would, would sometimes give this gift to their daughters just before they were to marry as, as, as a form of insurance. They could also take some of it and anoint their groom to be to express their wholehearted love and devotion to him. Or sometimes if a daughter uh, passed the age of marriage or it looked like they were never going to have a man in their life who would provide for for them, uh, oftentimes a father before he passed, he would give this as a safe card, as a hedge, as, as a sort of life insurance policy to his daughter. So from all of this, we can deduct some things. That this is Mary's personal treasure probably a gift from her father, who scholars also think has probably passed on. And I want us to reflect on what Mary is truly giving up. This is her security. This is her worth. This is her protection. It might even symbolize the one man in her life who loved her, her father. So in breaking this bottle open and pouring it all out on Jesus, she isn't just giving Jesus her most prized possession. She's giving Jesus her absolute everything. Everything. Just like the widow a couple weeks ago. Her might, she gave everything. In fact, she, she, she does three specific things uh, with this alabaster jar that, in my opinion, each are significant. Uh, first, she, she breaks it open and pours it all out. This is why the whole room is filled with, with, with its aroma. In fact, the fact that it is in Jesus' hair and, and from top to feet, uh, people suggest that he even went to the cross just smelling of this aroma. Second, Mary pours it on Jesus' head. And third, John's gospel gives us this detail. He he highlights the fact that Mary uh, actually anoints Jesus' feet with it and washes Jesus' feet with the oil in her hair. Can you see it? Can you envision her doing this? I mean, it's so extravagant. It's so public. And see, Mary is, is showing the world, she, she's showing us what Jesus actually means to her. I mean, when she breaks open that jar and, and, and pours all that oil on Jesus, she's telling Jesus, no matter the cost, 
I give you my everything. There is nothing that I possess that means more than you. It brings to mind uh, the words of that old hymn. Lord, you're more precious than silver. Lord, you're more costly than gold. Lord, you're more beautiful than diamonds. And there's nothing that I desire except you. That's what this act screams. And then when she takes the oil and and anoints Jesus' head, uh, you have to know that the way that kings were crowned in those days, they weren't given the actual crown. Uh, They were anointed with oil. The oil represents uh, the spirit of God that comes down their head and just soaks them. And this is the very word, what Christ means. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It's his title. It means the anointed one. And I think the reason why Mark is, is, is highlighting this aspect of, of Mary's anointing, the anointing of the head, because his whole gospel is about a king, a Messiah, who is David's Lord, who comes to this world to unleash God's kingdom on earth, God's rule. And so with this act, you see what Mary is saying, Jesus, you are the king, you are that king, you are my king, my Adonai, my Lord. And then when she takes this oil to Jesus' feet, I mean, you need to know that, that in this world, this act is below what even a servant would, would, would do in that day because the rabbis actually taught that no servant, no servant or slave must ever be asked to wash someone's feet. It was just too demeaning, too humili- humiliating. It was too low. And yet Jesus washes Jesus' feet with this oil, and she's saying really to Jesus, as my, as my king, I'm surrendering everything to you. My rights, all control. My life is bowed in total submission to you, Jesus. And then to actually wipe Jesus' feet with her hair. She actually has to do something. She has to take her head covering off, and she has to let, let her hair down. And... We, we, look, we would look at this and think, so what? Well, uh, no woman would ever let their hair down in public. You only did this behind closed doors with your family. In fact, the rabbis also taught that if a women, woman ever did this in public, of letting, letting her hair down in this fashion, it was grounds for divorce. So some have actually hinted that, that, that maybe uh, this act is, is sexual. Sigmund Freud said that all spirituality is nothing more than repressed sexual desires. You know, that if we're spiritual in any way, we're only acting out repressed sexuality. Someone help that man. Because the Bible actually teaches the opposite. That sexuality is repressed spirituality. Why do you think our culture today is so sexual? It's because we've repressed God. We've repressed his Christ. What people are actually trying to get from sex is really a counterfeit of the deepest longing of their heart, which is their longing for God. So Mary's response is not sexual. Mary does this, the whole entire act, because of what Jesus means to her. 
And this is why Jesus, for, for Mary, this is more than her just giving up her wealth. It's more than her giving up security and control. She is giving Jesus her very heart. All that she is. With all that I am, I give myself to you, Jesus. It's the hymn that we used to sing a lot, Take My Life and Let It Be, Lord, Consecrated to Thee. Take my love, my Lord, I pour. At your feet, it's treasure store. Take myself, and I will be ever, only, all for thee. Is that the song of your heart? Does Jesus mean this much to you? Or maybe I should just ask, what does Jesus mean to you? Can you say to Jesus, Lord, you're more precious than silver, you're more costly than gold, you're more beautiful than diamonds, and Lord, there's nothing that I desire that compares to you? And see, I think the reason why, why Jesus says that, that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, that, that this story will be told. And here we are, 2,000 years. Hopefully, I'm proclaiming the gospel, and we're still telling this story. It's because the gospel, at the end of the day, really leaves us with two options. You can either reject it, and there's a thousand ways to reject it, or... You can receive it, but there's only one way to receive it. Look at Mary. You see, this is why I think all four Gospels include a version of this story. Because I also think that, that uh, what they see as, as the greatest threat to the Gospel, it, it's not so much agnosticism, it's not even paganism, the greatest threat to the gospel is religion. Because when you look at this story, who is it that's taking issue with, with Mary? Who, who are the ones who are disgusted with her? It's actually religious people. In fact, just look at the response. Look at verses four and five. It says, some of those who were present were saying indignantly to one another, why this waste of perfume? This could have been sold for more than a year's wages and the money given to the poor. And then it says, and they rebuked her harshly. And the word for rebuke here means to snort with disgust and anger. And Matthew's gospel fills in the they. Uh, Matthew's gospel tells us who the they is. It's all the disciples. And so what you really need to picture is that while Mary is doing this, breaking open this alabaster jar and anointing Jesus' head, anointing his feet, and it's all taking some time, the whole room just starts yelling at her, Mary! I can just hear Martha, like, coming from the kitchen, where she's, Mary, what are you doing And they're disgusted with everything that Mary's doing, not just the hair, 
most of all that she would just recklessly waste something that was worth so much and just dump it all out in a moment. Now we know from John's gospel that Judas is actually the one who expresses all the disgust in the room. He's the one who actually says, what a waste. I mean, a whole annual salary just poured out on the ground, $40,000. And then he spiritualizes uh, his disgust. He virtue signals. Um, another thing religious people always feel compelled to do, he says the jar could have been sold and its money given to the poor. Now, Judas stands in this story representing the disciples, so put them all together. Don't just single out Judas. He should, he, he, he should be this warning signal to, to all of us. Because what you have in, in Judas and these disciples are, 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 are people who have who've been with Jesus. They're with him. They're around him for every day for three years. But in the end, you have Judas who will sell Jesus and you have Mary who is sold out to Jesus. And here's the deal, on the outside, you really never know the difference between Judas and Mary. But it's the difference between a religious heart in a heart that has truly been transformed by the gospel because Judas, he does, he represents this religious heart. Uh, he's someone who, who does receive Jesus, but he does it on his terms. His Jesus at the end of the day is a self-serving Jesus, a Jesus for me, a Jesus uh, for my life, for my plans, for my dreams, a Jesus who actually sits at my feet instead of a life that's bowed at Jesus' feet. Let me ask, are, are, are you just using God today for your ends? And it could be something as grand as feeding the poor. Or is God truly the end, the end in your life? Are you pursuing God? Are you pursuing Jesus for your sake or for God's sake? Because these are two very different things. It's the difference between a Judas and a Mary. And if you're someone who, who finds yourself to be chronically disappointed, disappointed in God, disappointed in God's ways, disappointed in, in God's world, disappointed in his Christ, disappointed in his word, disappointed in God's people, it's a good chance you're a Judas. That Jesus is just the means to your ends, as opposed to you being a submissive means to Jesus' ends. And I think this is the final straw for Judas. He's done. He's done. Because look at the next verse after our text, verse 10. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went out to the chief priest to betray Jesus to them. See, Jesus to Judas was just the means to Judas's plans, to Judas's expectations, to his hopes, to his 
dreams and, and, and thus the, the, the disappointment. And let me tell you what this is all rooted in. This is rooted in pride. It's all about Judas. Jesus, I know better than you how my life should go. I know better than you how your kingdom should come, how your Bible should read, what your Christ should be. Think about the audacity of that. This is why the Judases of the world, even though they're filled with pride, they're really not that confident. Because when life is all about me and what I do and how well I perform and how well I look and what others think and being better than the next guy and the next guy and the next guy, thus the insecurity. You never feel good enough. You never feel like you measure up, which is why the Judases of the world, all they can do is resort to making fun of the Marys. And they are chronically critical and judgmental. That's Judas. And see, the Marys of the world actually make religious people really uncomfortable because <laughs> Mary doesn't care what she looks like. She doesn't care even what her culture thinks. She doesn't care what the people in the room think. She doesn't care what the men think. She's filled with this humble confidence, this confident humility, which is the opposite of that proud insecurity of Judas. She is actually humble enough to do what even a slave wouldn't do in that day, and that is get low and wash someone's feet and to do it publicly. And yet she's confident to just move boldly to Jesus and to just let her hair down and to anoint him with this oil. And see, here's where we need to ask the important question, how does Mary become Mary? Well, it's hinted in the text in verses six to eight, um, Jesus tells everyone to leave her alone. Why are you bothering her? She's done this beautiful thing to me, the poor you always have with you, and you can help them anytime you want, but you will not always have me. And here's the whole key. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare me for my burial. Jesus said, she, she's just anointed my body for its burial. In other words, she... She knows that there's something more important than even helping the poor. <laughs> and what could that be? Jesus. And when it comes to Jesus, she knows him. She doesn't just know about him. She knows him. Because there's a, there's a famous saying about the rabbis in Jesus' day. It goes like this. Your house shall be a meeting place for the wise rabbis. Attach yourself to the dust of their feet and drink thirstily of their words. And see, every time, if you take note of the Gospels, every time we read about Mary, she's always at her favorite place. She's at Jesus' feet, thirstily drinking in his words. 
And because of this, she knows things that haven't computed with other people. She, she knows that Jesus is gonna die. She knows that Jesus is gonna die for her. That Jesus is gonna be the alabaster box broken open, all poured out, which is why she's taking what's so precious to her and breaking it, breaking it open and pouring it all out over Jesus. And it's why Jesus says in verse eight, she has anointed my body for burial. Now it's hard to tell this story without also bringing up another time a woman came to Jesus in the house of another Simon, and this time it's Simon the Pharisee, not Simon the leper. And just like in our story today, the, the woman who comes in, she kneels at Jesus' feet and she breaks open her alabaster jar and she wipes Jesus' feet with the oil. However, in this story, which is told in Luke 7, the woman isn't even really called a woman. She's simply called a sinner. In fact, when Simon the Pharisee, who's invited Jesus into his home, sees this act, all he could do is mumble in disgust. Does Jesus not know the sinner this woman is? Which causes Jesus to look right at Simon and to say to him, the one who's been forgiven much is the one who loves much. And you, Simon, you're interested in me. But this woman, she loves me. She loves me. And I think this explains the difference between a Mary and a Judas. Because to the Judases of the world, Jesus is useful. But to the Marys of the world, Jesus is beautiful. And I'll tell you why, to the Marys of the world, why Jesus is so beautiful. Because the Marys of the world know two very important realities that I think the Judases of the world are too proud to see. They know first how forgiven they are and what it costs God to forgive them. Thus, the humility, and they know why God did what he did, because he loves them that much. Thus, the confidence. And see, to the extent that you know these two realities, how forgiven you are, and to the extent to, 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 to that which God went to to forgive you and why he did it because he loves you, to that extent, you're going to be a Mary. And to the extent that you don't know them, you're going to be a Judas. Because to know how forgiven you are, you have to know something. You have to know the depth of your sin. And there's the humility. This is how you can live out Paul's thing and, and not count anyone, uh, uh, count yourself as better than anyone. 
But then when you know what it costs God to forgive you and, and why he did it, that he loves us that much, there's the confidence. And see, both of these aspects are important because if I see my sin without the forgiveness, I'm just a failure at the end of the day. Uh, but if I see God's forgiveness but not see my own sin, it, it doesn't affect me, it doesn't change me, it doesn't cause my heart to sing, to worship and to adore him. Because Jesus is right, the one who is forgiven much is the one who loves much. Do you love him? With delight, with passion, with tears. Where Jesus is just no longer useful to you, but he's actually stunningly beautiful. See, when Jesus becomes beautiful to us, this is when we change. And this is how a Judas becomes a Mary. So let me end with this question. Are you a Judas today or are you a Mary? Only you know and God. And how about your alabaster jar, whatever that is? Have you broken it open and poured it out at Jesus' feet? And I'm here to tell you that for the Marys of the world, this is not, oh, I gotta do that. This is, I can't wait to do that. It's like that widow a few weeks ago who gave God her everything. When we, like, a, like that widow, know that we are nothing but a poor widow, that we are utterly and spiritually bankrupt before God. This is what causes us to give our might, our everything, our alabaster jar. Now, when I see Jesus, the king, who is my king, all broken open and poured out for me because of his amazing love for me, this is when we can't wait to bring our might, our alabaster jar, and break it open and pour it all out at his feet. The hymn got it so right, didn't it? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. So this morning, the table is set. It's the gospel. It's his body broken, his blood poured out. We can receive this like Judas, or we can receive the gospel like Mary. And God, is, as you know, I had to do massive repentance this week, and I'm still repenting of the Judas and the Judas ways in my heart. Thank you, God, that we can just fix our eyes on you, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And we see ourselves in light of you and all that you are and all that you have done and all that you offer and how you offer it. It melts our heart. It changes us. 
And so, God, right now we look at our heart. And we ask of our own individual heart, have we broken our hearts open and poured our hearts at your feet? Holy Spirit, come into us. God, may there be revival today in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Thank you.